Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my highly stochastic friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we discuss issues of controlling for particular variables, control by randomization and control by design, but especially the challenges and assumptions associated with statistical control. Along the way, we also mention drag racing, Volkswagen bugs, Seabiscuit, Harrison Bergeron, Diet Coke, Janet Jackson, John Denver, gastrointestinal distress, Sewell Wright, and babies in bathwater. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. So you may or may not have noticed, but on rare occasion, I will depart on a rather long-winded story that when completed, maybe doesn't have a point. Hmm. I think that's limited to days that end in Y. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I am asking your permission to hang with me on this one. Okay. <laughs> All right? All right. I'm a teenager. I'm south side of Denver. As we found from several analogies... I had more contacts with the police than a typical teenager might have. And my parents were encouraging me to try to find something in which I limited the number of police contacts that I had. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I really got into was drag racing. I never drove myself. I didn't have a car to race, but my buddy did. And we would go out to a place called Bandemir Speedway. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a drag strip that's carved out against the mountains. You see Denver in the distance. Absolutely beautiful. Once a month, they had amateur night. And they would open the track to anybody who wanted to race. And you paid something like 50 bucks to enter. The only rule was you couldn't be a professional racer and the car had to be street legal. Mm -hmm. You'd set up, you'd put out tables, you'd bring a barbecue. And all Saturday were time trials. And what that is, is every car that was entered got to run three times. So drag racing is a quarter mile. Mm -hmm. And you run three times to determine your fastest time. And the term is called clocking in. Mm -hmm. All right. So you run your three times, you get your fastest time, and that's your clocked in time. And some guy comes out with white shoe polish and writes on your window mm -hmm. 15.8 or 22.1 or whatever it is. And that's how many seconds it takes you to run a quarter mile. Mm -hmm. Then the sun goes down and then they open up the racing. And two cars would go up and line up side by side. But here's the cool thing is a lot of people who think about drag racing think that it's racing the cars. It actually is not, is you're racing the drivers. Mm -hmm. Let's say one driver pulls up, she clocks in at 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. The second guy pulls up and he clocks in at 19 seconds. They want to isolate the skill of the driver. So what they do is literally, it's called a Christmas tree, and they're the lights that are in between the two cars. Mm -hmm. And it's red at the top, and then it goes yellow, 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 green that releases the car. Well, he's clocked in at 19. She's clocked in at 15. He gets a four-second head start because his car is four seconds slower. Mm -hmm. So his goes red, yellow, 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 green, and they release him. And she sits there for four seconds, which mm -hmm. I have to tell you in a race is interminable. Uh -huh. And then hers goes red, yellow, 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 green, and releases. And then she runs hers, and they've equated the cars on speed. Mm. So I got two points to this. One is, this is the purest example, I feel like, of control by design, 
where you're trying to isolate the skill of the driver. Uh-huh. The second thing, though, was I did not have a race car. I had my dad's <laughs> 1969 Volkswagen Bug. On a double dare, I entered the 1969 <laughs> Bug. Now, keep in mind, this is in the early 80s, which uh-huh. means all of the cars that are being entered are like 1960s Camaros and Corvettes and mm-hmm. Fastback Mustangs. I've got a 1969 four-cylinder air-cooled <laughs> Volkswagen Bug. I do time trials, and I clocked in at something like 37 <laughs> seconds. So I go out to race, and the guy I'm running against was at, like, 14 (laughs) seconds. I got a (laughs) 23-second head start. And my friends told me afterwards it was actually the biggest cheers that were of the night Uh because mine went red, yellow, 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 green. And I was like, (laughs) with my little bug going Uh down. And a quarter mile doesn't sound like much, but when you're all by yourself on a professional racetrack, I was going with both hands on the wheel as it's bouncing up and down in my bug. And this 1969 Camaro just sat there. (laughs) And it sat there, and it sat there. Imagine 23 seconds, Uh and it sat there. And my buddies told me afterwards the crowd was going nuts. Oh, the tension As it just sat there and just, as it idled. And then it went red, yellow, 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 green. In my rearview mirror, all I saw was a ball of flame (laughs) as the car was released. And I sat there, and I was at, like, terminal velocity at this point. I was going, like, 58 miles an hour. And I could see the finish line. Like, it was literally, like, 100 yards and 50 yards and 30 yards. And I swear to God, at, like, 20 yards, Mm -hmm. I was still out in front. And there was a flash of smoke and fire and the fury of hell (laughs) as this car passed me at like 140 miles an hour. And I was going (laughs) 60. That was my drag racing experience. Wow. But the point of my story, and here's where I'm going to bring it home. Uh Uh-huh. That is controlling by design. How do you isolate the skill of the driver by trying to equate the speed of the car? Hmm. That's my story. I have no experience whatsoever in drag racing, although I did drive a little Volkswagen Bug, and I can hear the sound of it, that low ring of the engine. I even had a an accident where one of them was totaled while I was driving it. It actually fell apart on the freeway. One of the wheels just came off, the back end hit the ground, sparks were showering while I'm driving it on the freeway as the back wheel passes me. (laughs) Yeah, I never went to watch any drag racing or car racing of any kind, but I remember the advertisements for them on the radio. Race fans, race fans, race fans! (laughs) Lots of the original funny cars, too. Those unlimited pro stocks. Plus, we're giving away 64 Mongoose bikes. And starting the show with dazzling aerial fireworks. 64 funny cars presented by Coors Beer this Saturday night. Gates open at noon. Ground pounding starts at 7. But I I like this as a metaphor for control, at least a particular type of control. And it seems like this is a very good issue to talk about from a lot of different angles. Because people in their research 
really have to worry about how they can deal with these extraneous factors. In your case, the difference between, what, a 1969 Camaro Rally Sport SS or whatever. I just threw a bunch of things together, but it feels real. (laughs) Versus a bug. So why don't we transition to that and see how that your experiences on the uh, on the racing circuit can translate into some things for people out there who need to do control in their research. For me, it's kind of like you had some joke a while ago when we were talking about mixture modeling, where instead of I see dead people is you, mm-hmm. it was <laughs> I see mixtures or something like that. Yep. I find it one of those interesting things that when you start thinking about control, And whether it be control by design or what I'd like to chat a little bit about of statistical control, Mm -hmm. you start seeing it all over the place. How do you equate certain things to isolate the effects of certain other things? We all know well from our experimental design courses that control is arguably one of the most important elements of the entire scientific process. How do you isolate the effect in which you are interested? It's tied to internal validity, to external validity, to statistical conclusion validity, all of these things that we can talk about. But the troika of control is you can control by randomization, you can control by design, or you can control statistically. Mm -hmm. And there are 83 different ways you can do that, as you commented about entire wings of libraries being dedicated to causes. Mm -hmm. The other wing is dedicated to control and experimental design. And so we're only going to skim across the top. But a lot of it comes out of sports, right, is the term handicapping. Mm-hmm. If you've ever read the book Biscuit, my sister gave that to me. And it was one of those, I was like, thanks, Teresa. <laughs> Biography of a horse. And it's an amazing book. But they Uh talk historically about horse racing, and the whole term of handicapping was actually very similar to the head start in drag racing. They would hang metal plates on horses that were faster so that they had to carry more weights. And they would talk about that's where the term came from, is a horse was handicapped Hmm. because it was faster naturally, and they wanted to take away that advantage. Interesting. I'm a big Kurt Vonnegut fan, and there's a short story Something... I know it. What is it? Harrison Bergeron. Harrison Bergeron. If you haven't read that, go read it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. But very, very similar is they've decided they're going to equate society. If you're graceful, you have heavy things hung from you. Mm -hmm. And if you're bright, you have headphones that make klaxon sounds. If you're too good looking, you have to wear a mask. Ah. Yeah, that's in there too. No one has ever suggested I wear a mask. (laughs) Or have a klaxon or hang heavy things. (laughs) I would argue that control is the most important thing that we think about in everything that we do. Just the whole logical argument embedded within science has to do with in order for you to make particular claims, which are usually of a causal nature, you have to make sure that you can rule out the other explanations. And we talked about this back when we talked about external validity at the end of last season. 
question is, how can we do that? How can we rule out all of these other competing explanations so that in the end, we can say that it is X that is influencing Y, all the other Zs have somehow been controlled. And how do we do that? Given that I burned about a third of the episode just on my drag racing story, Mm -hmm. I will cut the corner to what I would like to puzzle through with you today. Mm -hmm. There's randomization, right? So you have true randomization to design. We have control by design. That's what the drag racing is, Mm -hmm. is you're going to say, okay, we're going to manually manipulate the design and give you a four-second head start or a 23-second head start, as it might be. In our neck of the woods, you can think about things like inclusion criteria. So we do a lot of work with substance use, adolescent substance use. Inclusion criteria is you have to be an active drinker. That, I feel like, is a corollary to the head start in drag racing, is we're going to control by design or blocking or matching all these things. The one that I think is both one of our greatest strengths in quant methods, but is also the bane of our existence, is statistical control. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, I was reading the news, Washington Post, a story that they had some big study on looking at the relation between diet drinks and heart disease. So open one of your 11 Diet Cokes that you have in front of you. Lean back Mm -hmm. and let me update you on the finding of this study, which is there was a positive relation found between consuming diet drinks Mm -hmm. and later heart disease, as however they defined it. Mm -hmm. Well, I kept reading, and it turns out it was a passive observational study, one of these big public health study data sets that they have in Europe. Sure. In a lot of those types of studies, they just ask a whole bunch of different lifestyle-related questions, and they sort of throw them at the wall and see which one might tie to something later without any model, without any planning associated with that, without any error control. So consistent with that, yes, the error control. Nice tie back to type 1 terror. Thank you very much. I got down to the very bottom, Mm -hmm. and there was kind of, as you say, I like the fine print, right? Mm -hmm. The lawyers come in. Legal. Mm -hmm. But I actually jotted it down in anticipation of talking about this today. The authors controlled for a range of confounders that might skew the data. I've worked in this field for 30 years. Uh I'm not entirely sure what that means. Uh (laughs) But they found a small but statistically significant effect of diet drink intake on heart disease that could not be attributed to other factors. And this is where I'd like to kind of enter the fray. Can you estimate a statistical model, throw in a range of confounders, and then say it's fundamentally an issue of cause? That if you drink your 11 Diet Cokes that are sitting in front of you, you will have an increased risk of Mm -hmm. heart disease, and it's not due to any other characteristics because we controlled for those. And listeners, I just used air quotes. We controlled for those, or we removed the effects of those. Yeah, and one clarification I'd like to make before we go down this really, really important road is generically, we're operating in a space where we have an X, X may be treatment, X may be (laughs) diet drink intake, 
which we could randomly assign people to have different diet drink intakes and look at the ultimate effect. And there would be some design approach to trying to deal with that. Or we can gather diet drink consumption, as I assume that study did. And then we have some particular outcome. So we've got an X, we've got a Y, and then we have a Z or multiple Zs to worry about. Very few things keep me awake at night, but the Zs are one of them. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> Aha! Catching some Zs. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's getting cut out. <laughs> I worry about internal validity. I worry about the extent to which what I believe the causal inference to be is actually the causal inference at hand mm -hmm. and is not representing some omitted variable, some confounder, some third variable correlate, right, that we all think about. Going back to the example I use a lot is parental alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Does a child have an alcoholic parent or not have an alcoholic parent? We do a two-group T-test. And we show that unambiguously children with an alcoholic parent are at significantly greater risk for using drugs and alcohol themselves, right? Is it due to the parental alcoholism? Mm -hmm. Or it turns out there's this thing called comorbidity, that if you have one diagnosis, you are at a higher probability of having other diagnoses. Well, there's a huge overlap between parental alcoholism and antisocial personality disorder, mm -hmm. ASPD. Well, if we omit antisocial personality disorder, either in the design or in our measurement, I would worry deeply that when we say, oh, there's this high risk factor associated with parental alcoholism, we should really treat the parent's alcoholism to reduce that risk. Well, at the extreme, if it has nothing to do with the alcoholism and it's all about antisocial personality disorder, you dispatch the fire trucks to the wrong house that's on fire. Yes. And you're not intervening in the system in the way that you think you are. Yeah. And we should talk about the mechanisms of statistical control in just a moment. But everybody out there knows what the control variables are in their world. It might be prior achievement. It might be SES. It might be grade point average. There are all of these things that people like to say, and we controlled for, and they just sort of give this litany of things. But what the heck does that mean when it comes down to statistical control? How does that work? And does it work? And so it would be nice for us maybe to wander into what it means to control for things statistically, and then ultimately whether or not we should be doing so. There are many sophisticated things that we can do to protect against these confounding influences. And there are conditions under which we can say, well, given the information available to us, SES does not appear to be accounting for this relation. And so with some degree of confidence, we can say that we remove the effects of SES as a potential confounder. Like, I'm totally on board with that, but they're like everything we do, there's a line in the sand. Every one of us has seen in published manuscripts or in dissertation defenses or in conference presentations very strong statements of saying, well, we've removed racial differences <laughs> from the analyses. And my thought sitting in the back is, well, first, did you? And second, do you want to? Yeah, so there are issues associated with the statistical process of removing things and what goes on there, whether or not all the planets align for statistical control to do what it is supposed to do. But then there's a broader inferential concern. Just because we can, does it mean we should? Does it somehow interrupt our causal chain otherwise? So I think we really should pick these apart statistically and then more broadly from an inferential standpoint. 
I keep having the Janet Jackson. Do you know the Janet Jackson song Control? No. Oh my gosh. This is a story about control. My control. Control of what I say, control of what I do. I know some John Denver songs though. Country road, <laughs> take me home. So I like how the debates have mic mute. <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking of that right now. Country roads, take me home. But I digress. So I remember the first time that I learned about control was when I was taught about analysis of covariance. Mm. And analysis of covariance was magic. That we had this idea at the simplest form that we might have had a treatment group and a control group. And the way it was pitched was that, well, we can't always ensure that those groups are balanced in a variety of ways experimentally. And indeed, that's true, right? There are so many cases where we don't have control over who falls in what group or who has what levels of an independent variable. And in comes Ancova and says, I've got this. I can clean up this mess. There's that magic term again, because I have that same kind of feeling. I'm going to compare parental alcoholism and non-alcoholism to adolescent substance use, so a T-test, but that is an ANOVA, and to say, but maybe there are age differences. So we had, this was an actual thing in the data, at wave one, the kids were 11 to 16 years old. Well, there's a big relation between age and consumption of alcohol, of course, a 16-year-old versus a 14-year-old versus a 12-year-old and drinking. And to say, I can isolate the effects of parental alcoholism above and beyond the effects of the adolescent's age. It was magic, is you're removing these effects of age. It's as if all the kids were exactly the same age, right? That's what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, well, how would you do that in a design? So if you wanted to remove the effects of chronological age in an experimental design, you'd have alcoholic parents, non-alcoholic parents, and everybody would be 12 years and three months old. Mm -hmm. Everybody would be exactly the same age. You're controlling by design. But of course, that's not how we do work in our neck of the woods. We have 11 to 16-year-olds, so we estimate and remove those effects. Now, two things come to mind. First is, in our ongoing attempt to confuse people about how we would do this in practice and how we talk about it, is we have multiple words to describe exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Covariate, control variable, blocking factor, design factor. What's your favorite term to describe exactly the same thing? Confounder. Really? Well, you use... (laughs) You used all the other ones. You don't have to add one. I'm just telling you to pick one. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, I like potential confounder, actually. Hmm. (laughs) What are you judging? I'm totally judging. You know why you're judging? Because you have control issues. Because it's all about control. And I've got lots of it. Huh? This is just occurring to you? (laughs) You're perfectly suited for this topic. I am in my element in attempting to exert control, Mm. not necessarily the successful implementation of control, because that's part of the heart of what we're talking about here. 
why do we call it a covariate and how does that differ from a predictor? This is a very common question that comes up in a lot of teaching on my end. Mm -hmm. And I'm partly guilty for this because I talk about predictor variables and control variables or predictor variables and covariates. Many times that distinction is theoretical. I'm interested in the effects of parental alcoholism and I want to covary out the effects of age. Well, what if you're a developmental psychologist and you're interested in age trajectories of substance use and you want to control for the effects of parental alcoholism? Well, now your predictor age is the predictor and alcoholism is the covariate. They're all the same things. It's what you identify them as. And where I've come to is I don't find that a useful distinction. I just talk of them as predictors or exogenous variables. Well, when I remember learning the magic of analysis of covariance, it was always in the context of a continuous covariate. And I think age is a very, very good example. We have an XY relation that we're interested in. We're, we really want to know about the influence that X has on Y. And X might be a treatment. X might be some other variable. But we wish to control for the effects of some other variable Z. And we'll talk about when that might make sense and when that might not make sense. But the way that I learned to think about it was there are different levels of our covariate, confounder, concomitant, predictor, exogenous. There are different levels of that. Imagine that we went to level one, uh, whatever that value would be, Z equals one, and we looked at the XY relation. And then we looked at it when Z is two, and we looked at it when Z is three, and we looked at it when Z is four. If we could isolate that, even forming subgroups on Z, we would break Z out into every possible value, look at the XY relation. The control that we are doing is like, it's not the same, but it is like pooling the information together from all of those subgroups. However, the control that's in analysis of covariance is a linear control, typically. So just like when you learn about homoscedasticity in regression, the variance being the same as you slide up and down the regression line, now imagine sliding the XY relation, everything about the XY relation, up and down some Z. So if X has a certain amount of variance and Y has a certain amount of residual variance, and X and Y have a certain slope that relate them, as you slide that model that includes those three things up and down Z, all of those things are staying the same. So just when someone tells you that homogeneity of variance might be a particularly big pill to swallow, this seems like a much, much bigger pill. And I'm just talking about the statistical aspects of it. Exactly. That sliding up and down, the term that I like is parallelism. And that came up in the moderation episode, I think, a little bit, as Ragosa in the late 70s talked about this assumption of parallelism in ANCOVA. It's the homogeneity and the slope of the relation between the covariate and the outcome, that that's exactly right. I like your slider analogy. Now, what's interesting is what Ragosa hit into play, and then obviously entire sections of the field picked up from there, is we are able to address that as we start to build out models by introducing interactions. Mm -hmm. If the magnitude of the relation between the covariate and the outcome is not equal across values of the other factor, well, we can bring in an interaction and introduce that it depends. And we've already embedded so many assumptions in the things we're talking about. 
even just the linearity of the covariates relation that we have, right? When I talk about sliding things up and down the covariates number line, well, should we be sliding it in a curved fashion? How does that work? The control that we typically embed, even without interactions, is a linear type of control. That may not make sense from the get-go. And then when you have exactly what you talk about, where the x-y relation starts to differ as a function of z, it may differ in the way that you describe, but it might not. There can be interaction going on there. I have a question for you about this. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. When I learned about analysis of covariance, we talked about this assumption of, as you called it, parallelism or homogeneity of slope. If you violated that assumption, was that a go, no-go for ANCOVA for you, or was it a go but under modified circumstances? And my recollection of my own learning of that was not did you fail the assumption of homogeneity in regression slope with the covariate in an ANCOVA, but is there an interaction that you could estimate mm -hmm. and model in the more general GLM? And so that was Ragosa's big contribution of many, but the one with respect to this particular question is saying, look, this isn't an assumption that we have to jack it, and it's not something that we want to work to make go away. This is actually in and of itself an interesting research question. Mm -hmm. Because think about the parental alcoholism substance use as the focal predictor and then age as a covariate. Well, if we do an ANCOVA-like design where we want to estimate, and this is the term I hate, estimate and remove the effects of age and look at what is left over. Instead, we can embrace this and say, well, what if there's an interaction between age and parental alcoholism? And then the it depends question is, what is the risk associated with having an alcoholic parent? Well, it depends in part on the age of the child, because that may be a greater risk for older kids but a lesser risk for younger kids, you now have an interaction, you don't have parallelism, you don't have homogeneity in the slopes, but it's an interesting theoretical question. I agree that it is interesting. And I'll tell you, I come to this from different places and the different places statistically leave me feeling differently. So when I think about this as a general linear modeler, totally interesting question. Let's get an interaction in there. Let's test the interaction. That's fascinating in and of itself. When I come to it from an ANCOVA perspective, there's a word that often lurks in the background of ANCOVA, and that's adjustment or adjusting for, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that these groups perhaps are somehow different to begin with, and we would like to make an adjustment for that. We would like to hang the heavy weights on the horse. The thing about ANCOVA is that when I think about it as an adjuster, there's a certain fairness that I like to think about. And the fairness is in how I make the adjustment. Should I make the adjustment in each group the same way? Or is it okay to make the adjustment differently? When the slope between X, Y is different in the two different groups, then the idea of making everybody 12 years and three months or something that you said before, or, or equating people, you're using a different relation to equate people. There's a part of me that was raised in ANCOVA that says, is that fair? If you're in this group, we don't even need to adjust for age because age isn't mm -hmm. tied to anything. But in this other group, it is. So we're going to make an age adjustment over in this group, which is a dramatic example. And that always felt a little bit weird. Now, when I switch over to a general linear model perspective, that thought escapes my mind. But when you go back to, and this is often presented within analysis of covariance settings, 
what are the adjusted means for these groups? Right. Not the observed means, but the adjusted means. Yeah. And that's where the voice in my head said, but if there's an interaction, then we don't adjust them equally? And is that, and is that okay? Some days I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> and some days I kind of squint and cock my head and say, really? Yeah, right. So that's where I am. I, I still give it side eye. I'm not sure what to do about it, but I still give it that side eye. So we've hit on some of the assumptions associated with control, and we've used ANCOVA sort of as a framework for talking about that. Do we want to address right now the measurement assumption in the room before we tackle what I think are even bigger issues? I think so, because I think it's important before starting to peel the layers off the onion is to remind ourselves of what are the rules of engagement that we are bringing on to allow us to do this in the way that we're doing it. But imagine that you have a new curriculum in a classroom. Let's say there are three options. You have curriculum one, two, and three. And the outcome is some performance on a standardized test. And you want to know, Mm -hmm. does a different curriculum differentially impact performance on a test? But you worry about test anxiety. And what you would like to say is, well, I don't want individual variability and test anxiety to have an impact on test scores that might in some way be related to the curriculum. I want to estimate and remove that effect and look at the curriculum controlling for test anxiety. Well, test anxiety is an exogenous predictor in the GLM. Gauss-Markov rolls over in their joint graves I don't know if they were buried together or not. That'd be kind of cool. Oh, that's sweet, though. Yeah. It would be sweet. They roll over jointly in their graves and say, well, remember, we have made an assumption that all predictors in the GLM, their distributions are fixed and known. What's interesting is we've talked about this before. GLM doesn't explicitly make an assumption about reliability. It makes an assumption about non-stochasticity, which is a great word on a Southwest flight to keep people from talking to you. (laughs) Wow. Yep. That's a good one. It is a good one. Non-stochasticity, which is the distributions are fixed and known, a logical result of which then is it's measured with perfect reliability. Mm -hmm. And so we know that unreliability in the covariate is going to do nasty things to our regression coefficient itself, as well as standard errors and things like that. We've talked about that before. But everything that's good for a predictor in just an OLS regression applies here, and that unreliability can be damning in a covariate kind of relation, because if you're attenuating a relation between a Z and a Y because the predictor is unreliable, you're adjusting the dependent variable with respect to that regression coefficient and then doing a comparison of group means on those adjusted scores, if you have unreliability in the predictor, that's going to wreak havoc with that adjustment. Absolutely. And I want to offer a clarification, and that is that a covariate isn't just some nice thing that maybe we can get some benefit from. A covariate is something that you think is relevant to this argument. When we say something like, well, you know, our covariate wasn't measured very well, it's got some measurement error, that doesn't just mean that you're going to lose power. It means you're actually going to bias your ability to detect the effect of something, that the XY relation will be compromised as a function of you improperly controlling for the covariate because you don't actually have the covariate. You have an error-laden proxy of that particular covariate. So it's not just, oh, yeah, we had some measurement error. It means that your inference in the end from an interval estimation standpoint will be wrong. 
So this is not about just giving you more power. It's not about just kind of cleaning up things on the back end if we can. This is about the causal inference, the chain of inference that you're going to make. Everything that we're saying here is a very specific belief about the relevance of that covariant. And your omission of that variable from the system can cause you to completely misestimate the relation between X and Y, which might be the effect of a treatment. We're starting to pick at the scab of Mm -hmm. all the things that are related because we've talked before, never omit a predictor variable based solely on a non-significant bivariate correlation with the outcome because of things like suppression or interactions. Mm -hmm. But you can also overplay your hand and say, oh, well, I've got 18 possible control variables, so I'm just going to open up the hopper and dump them all in and, you know, it's the good old hang them all and let God sort them out. Mm -hmm. But I actually would very briefly like to return to power. Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting issue in these kinds of models. Because to be very, very clear, well, I can't speak for you, although I routinely do. We are not anti-covariates. We are not. No. We are not saying don't do this or they're limited or things at all. An example, and I think this is a really neat thing to highlight, especially in a first-year grad stat class. Let's go back to that simple two-group comparison of parental alcoholism and remember that everything we do are looking at ratios of variances, right? Is our F distributions and all these things that we do are looking at between and within variance and mean squared error. We want to reduce that residual variability in order to better highlight the group differences in what we're testing. And if age is related to the dependent variable and within approximation we can meet these assumptions, if you compute the power of a two-group t-test omitting the covariate and you compute the power of the two-group t-test having adjusted for the covariate, which makes it an ANCOVA, your power actually goes up with the inclusion of the covariate. The reason being the covariate is reducing the residual variance that is the focus of much of what we do. So two quick thoughts come to mind. One is I am not a fan at all of kitchen sink control variables where people just throw everything in the model, viewing it like an insurance policy. The other is that, yeah, absolutely to underscore what you said, even when someone uses random assignment to treatment and control groups, covariates can be incredibly useful, not for the adjustment that they do, but rather for the error variance that they reduce. So keeping those in mind, even when you have design aspects in place, I think is reasonable. For me, the bigger issue here, and this is not at all inconsequential, is under what circumstances does it make sense to control for a variable, and under what circumstances not only does it not make sense, but might it actually be harmful? Because there are circumstances, and maybe we'll highlight some of those, where I can give you a Z variable and say, hey, it's related to X, and hey, it's related to Y, and it would make total sense to control for that. There are other circumstances where I can say, I've got a Z that's related to X and it's related to Y, and you 100% should not control for that. And I think from a causal perspective, it's worth unpacking that. You've intrigued me, so talk to me about that. (laughs) Absolutely. I think you know this about me. I am a huge fan of path tracing 
And path tracing means different things to different people, people who are sort of coming up in a modern causal inference a la Judea Pearl world. What they mean by path tracing is a little different, although related to what the more historical Sewell Wright kind of people, social science orientation. I love path tracing in the sense of Sewell Wright. That is to say, I love to lay everything out in a model that corresponds to what I believe is influencing what. Let me start generically. Let's imagine that I'm interested in the effect that X has on Y, and I would represent that in a path diagram by having an arrow go from X to Y. But there's a Z out there, and maybe Z has an influence on X, and it has an influence on Y. The problem if I just analyze X and Y in their relation together is X and Y is going to get some bias up, bias down because of the external influence of Z. That would be a very reasonable scenario to want to control for the mutual influence of Z, the spurious association that is induced by Z. So if we take the example of how much Diet Coke someone drinks and the influence that it might have on particular health outcomes, well, what if it's the case that lack of sleep drives someone to consume Diet Coke because of the caffeine value? and lack of sleep drives someone to have other negative health consequences. If we really want to try to isolate the influence of Diet Coke on the health outcomes, it would stand to reason that we want to try to isolate and eliminate things that led to both of those. Because we don't want Diet Coke to get credit for or get blamed for something that is really due to a lack of sleep. It goes back to your mantra of what is the model? 100%. I'm going to ride that horse, or I'm going to drive that 1969 VW <laughs> the rest of the way. Absolutely. So now, let's think about something else. Forget about fatigue or lack of sleep. Now let's imagine that the more Diet Coke you drink, the more you suffer from gastrointestinal distress as a result, whether it's carbonation or caffeination, whatever. And then the gastrointestinal results, in turn, have subsequent problems later on. I think you mentioned heart problems, but we could imagine a number of other things. So, gastrointestinal problems is related to Diet Coke consumption, and it is related to the other subsequent health outcomes. Do I control for that? And the answer is absolutely not because the consumption of Diet Coke may have some direct effects on the health outcome and may have some indirect effects on the outcome via gastrointestinal distress that's fostered by it, but it is still part of the effect of Diet Coke. So that you need to have a model that situates these other variables that you worry about to make a very informed decision about whether you should control for it or you should not control for it. I share the same 1969 bug. You and I are going at 58 <laughs> miles an hour together as we see the fireball in our rearview mirror and know it's just a matter of time. I think about things like, say you're interested in depression predicting substance use, mm -hmm. but you want to, and here are my air quotes, remove the effects of stress. And so you use stress as a covariate. 
Well, you're removing the relation between stress and substance use and then examining what is left over between depression and substance use. So it's just a two-predictor regression where you're co-varying out the effects. But what if stress predicts depression and depression in turn predicts substance use? Again, it's what is your model. Now depression is a mediator Mm -hmm. of stress on substance use as opposed to removing that influence from substance use and looking at what's left over. It's the same three-variable system, but it's a fundamentally different statement about what you believe to exist and how you're going about isolating that effect statistically. Yes. And when I said at the beginning about path tracing, you think about all the ways that you can legally get from X to Y. And when I say legally, for those of you who aren't familiar with Sewell Wright's path tracing rules, I won't go over them all here, but there are certain ways that you can trace from one variable to another that subscribe to his three primary rules and others that don't. And there are parallels to this within the causal inference world, although they're a little bit different. And if it's the case that you, in your trace from X to Y, in one of those, you can go back to Z and then forward to Y. That is generally, not always, but generally a reasonable scenario for control. Because what you're doing is you're trying to accommodate something that had ultimately some mutual influence on both of those. And that falls in that spurious family. On the other hand... If in the trace from X to Y, you hit Z along the way, that is generally a bad thing. That is generally something that you should not control for because what you're doing is, the phrase that I sometimes use is you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're you're getting rid of one of the possibly important aspects of how X is able to work its influence on Y. Now, there are a whole bunch of other ways that we could situate these three variables. Imagine, in fact, that you just had on your whiteboard, as you like to mention, an X and a Y and a Z, and think of all the different ways that we could connect those. Some of those ways comport very nicely with the need to control and would foster what sometimes is referred to as good control. Good control meaning that it helps to reduce the bias in your assessment of the X-Y relation. There are scenarios where you could connect those three things that are absolutely bad control. You gave the mediational example. I'll give you another example. Imagine that X and Y both influence Z. In addition to their own relation, X and Y influence Z. So now, one way to think about it is you are using the future. I'm referring to Z as the future because it is causally downstream. You are using the future to control the past where that future was actually in part the result of that past. And that's a really Star Trek-y weird thing to want to do, <laughs> right? I was going to make a joke about that at your expense, yeah. and you beat me to yeah, it. it just writes itself, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but anybody can demonstrate this for themselves. Imagine you have two variables, X and Y, that are actually unrelated, which is like saying there's no treatment effect. But the treatment has an effect on something else, And Y has an effect on something else. So X is related to Z in an influential way. Y is related to Z. So they have correlations. But X and Y, I am saying, there's no treatment effect. There's no relation between the two. But if you go in and you compute a partial correlation, which we were trained to do, right? Oh my gosh, how do X and Y correlate after controlling for Z? But if Z is a thing downstream, 
then Z should not have any bearing on the correlation between X and Y. Z comes later. But if you, in fact, control, just go dig out your partial correlation formula, control for Z, what you will actually do is induce a relation between X and Y, right? The partial correlation will become non-zero, even if in real life it ought to be zero. So generally, as a rule of thumb, if Z precedes X and Y, it's usually a reasonable thing to control for, And if Z comes after X and or Y, it is usually an unreasonable thing to control for. So I'm looking at the shot clock. Let's start thinking about an exit strategy. Think about your side of the street, what you read. You're heading into IES grant review. What, tomorrow? Stop pressuring me. (laughs) Have you read your grants yet, Mr. Chair? We cannot be more clear. We are not arguing against statistical control. Mm -mm. We are arguing for being thoughtful about it, asking yourself, what is the model? What are you removing from the model? How do you envision these relations? Tell me an exemplar application where you would be comfortable with someone like me saying, we estimated and removed the effects of three covariates and examine group differences, net the influences of those demographic variables. Put a thumbtack in a map of where you would be. Yeah, no, that's cool. I see that. So first of all, I think the choice of covariates has to be justified within the context of the theory. It has to be justified in the context of the literature. I think it has to subscribe to a full model that involves the causal flow of things that are being hypothesized. You have to position those variables as part of the broader logic model, part of the causal model. And if that's not articulated, then I am already very concerned. I want to see specific hypotheses about those covariates, not just positionally in terms of the causal flow, but I want to see it with regard to the anticipated relations that they ought to have. If you're controlling for some background information like socioeconomic status, and that is justified, I want to know what kind of relation you think socioeconomic status should have with some other things. I want you to incorporate those control variables or covariates into your analyses in a proper way. I mean, if it's possible for those to have nonlinear relations, don't cram a linear model at us. If you think there are relevant interactions, relevant moderation that's going on as part of the model, you better have that in your model as well. I want to see all of the analytical details spelled out. I also want to know about the reliability of your covariates. I want to know about the quality of the information that they contain. One of the things that's a red flag for me when I'm reading papers, when I'm reading proposals, has to do with controlling for things when the key X variable might be something like country of origin, or gender, or race, or ethnicity. So in a number of studies, people are interested in examining the extent to which those are related to particular outcomes. I think you have to be so, so careful when you do that. And this comes down to the causal model as well. If I were, for example, looking at the impact of country of origin on an outcome, am I controlling for something that is also the result of country of origin, other differences between the countries. And if I'm doing that, and those differences are related to the outcome, then if I'm controlling for that, again, I'm throwing out part of the baby with the bathwater. If there are socioeconomic background variables, other educational backgrounds, and I start to control them out of a model, 
then am I actually removing the group differences that were intended to be studied in the first place? This is really just an example to underscore the importance of a causal model and to make sure you're not in a scenario where you're actually controlling out the effects that you're actually looking for. I like all of that. I think that lays out exactly what we should aspire to. I think about be thoughtful Mm -hmm. and do sensitivity analyses when possible. Look for interactions, look for nonlinearities, consider alternative models. So it's poke and stick. And for me, my life is governed by internal and external validity. Mm -hmm. And it generalizes to parenting and spouse and friendship. But even as I'm reading that Diet Coke study, you and I both consume an inordinate amount of Diet Coke. And I have some passing interest in what are the potential implications on my longevity. And not mine. Even not (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. But anyway, getting back on track... (laughs) This is where my girls tease me about yelling at NPR when I'm cooking dinner. I yell at NPR with the constant, well, how do you know that? Well, couldn't it be this? Well, did you control for that? And when you ask yourself, what is the mechanism that would lead someone to drink diet beverages? Are they already having weight problems and they're drinking diet in order to try to reduce their weight? And then you find these health problems that have nothing to do with diet drink, but it's with pre-existing conditions Mm -hmm. that themselves led to the consumption of diet drinks. Or as you say, and I have talked to you on Zoom at 11 p.m. when you are drinking a Diet Coke. Mm -hmm. Are there other reasons you would consume because of sleep deprivation or whatever? Mm -hmm. Is build a model for what you believe to exist, but being very, very clear. And I know we've said this two or three or four times already, is we are not advocating for not using covariates or controlling for extraneous variables. This is hugely important, but be thoughtful about it. And also, it's a common theme of ours as well. It's not magic. Hi, I'm Pan, and this is my partner, Teller. You're looking at the relation between your predictor and the outcome in your dissertation defense. Do not say, well, we estimated and removed the effects of gender, race, and socioeconomic status. All right, you did do that, but under assumptions, with a belief that these operate in the way that you have described. So put the legal fine print on that. Mm -hmm. One, did you really remove all racial differences? And second, is that really what you want to be doing anyway? There you go. Because I would make a pretty enthusiastic argument that that's about the last thing you want to be doing is removing the effects of race. You want to build that into your model in a principled and theoretically driven way to represent the process as you believe it exists in the wild. Yeah. And I like that as an exit principle here. And that is sometimes the right thing to do isn't to control for the variable. Sometimes the right thing to do is to use the variable to understand the world in a more complete way. And sometimes that means building models for different people so that we can understand whether or not the model functions differently across groups, whether or not there are different relations among variables. When you try to control for things and assumptions are violated, and there are many, many assumptions, 
then you start to lose an understanding of what the actual picture is of what's going on. So sometimes we can control for variables and it makes sense. And other times we literally use that variable to pull apart our sample and drill down and try to understand things in a more complete way. And not to overstate, but it ties back to something we were talking about earlier. I really do think there's a bearing on what you call these variables. Because Mm. if you refer to them as covariates, race is a covariate, that I'm going to estimate and remove the effects of that. You literally are saying it's as if everyone were the same race. Yeah. All right. So one is if you call it a covariate, that conveys something about the predictor. If you call that a predictor variable or an exogenous variable or an explanatory variable, nothing has changed. Everything's exactly the same, but it's putting it in a different hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And it is giving a different theoretical lens is, is this a demographic covariate that you're going to remove from the system? Or is this part of that broader representation of a complex process that we believe exists? Absolutely. I need a tie back either to drag racing or to Harrison Bergeron. One thing I love about Vonnegut This isn't giving anything away. This is a 50-year-old literary work, but the man and the woman are dancers and they remove their weights and they dance ballet on national TV. Yeah, and they show what you can do when you're unencumbered, when you're not wearing your mask, when you're not wearing your weights. And the man is watching TV Yeah, and he's weeping at the beauty, but then the klaxon sounds. Mm Mm-hmm. And it just all goes back to how it was. The handicapper general comes in with a shotgun and takes them both out. There you go. That's why I like Vonnegut. So on that note, (laughs) I hope you have found this remotely entertaining. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of fun to talk about. Stay safe and stay well. All right, everybody. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for things to listen to when you excuse yourself to go to the bathroom during holiday get-togethers, and please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other silly stuff. Finally, you can get Quantitude merch to meet all your upcoming gift-giving needs at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access and low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. We, too, refuse to concede, despite all evidence to the contrary. Quantitude has been brought to you by Patrick's parents, because now that he is no longer involved in drag racing, maybe co-hosting a podcast will keep him out of jail. Or not. By universities that are opening for in-person classes for the spring semester, a decision we sincerely respect for being directly informed by empirical data, even if they are holding the graph upside down. And by universities that are opening for in-person classes for the spring semester, because student safety is job nine. Sorry, I had two of those and I couldn't decide which to use. This is most definitely not NPR. You're not as gentle with your instrument as you used to be. 
Maybe I don't like you as much as I used to, Ringo. You don't seem to dislike my money. And my name is not Ringo. It's Jiffy. Oh, well, okay, Ringo Jiffy. You first come to me a freak. A ring-tailed lemur with no rings. You have to paint your rings on every day to look normal. Then every time you're about to do that thing that you do, whatever it is, you have me put another permanent ring on your tail. It concerns me. All of a sudden, you have a conscience? You do what I assume are abnormal things. I tattoo another ring on your tail to make you appear more normal. You see the irony? I am not paying you to be my therapist, Ivan. Should I even ask what happened to your ear? MMA, long story. Look, I need you to get me safe passage to the West. IDs, papers, everything. Hmm. Then I promise you'll never see me again. Okay. Be at the docks tomorrow at 4 a.m. Your contact will be expecting you. Thank you, Ivan. Spasiva. Your tale is complete. My tale is just beginning. Thank you.